Hey, all this is Ryan Williams. Welcome back to the Rhino Lab. We have a new podcast name, same podcast format. It's always going to be stories from the influencer economy, but we got a shiny new logo. It's called the Rhino Lab, and all of our archives are still at influencereconomy.com. I'll share on the back end of this episode the why and the how of rebranding the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Rhino Lab. This is Ryan Williams. So happy you're here. Episode 95 is where we are right now with Max Joseph. Max is the star of the reality show, or at least one half of the reality show, Catfish, which is a popular series on MTV that just completed its fifth season. He also is one of the brightest minds in online video. I was super inspired by this conversation. It is a master class in how to make awesome videos on YouTube pop all over the internet. Max is a brilliant filmmaker. Follow the Frog, his Rainforest Foundation video has over 20 million video views, as well as Make It Count, the epic Nike Fuel Band collaboration that he did with Casey Neistat, the YouTube video virtuoso. Uh, Max also is a film director, worked on the film We Are Your Friends, which starred Zac Efron and came out last year. He is a master thinker, and I was so excited to have him on. He came by the lab for an in-person interview, hadn't seen him in a while. So stick around, this episode has lots of actions and lessons for how to make a video pop. Max has over 150 million video views across YouTube. Here is Max Joseph in the influencer economy. Max, welcome. Thank you. Great to have you. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. I uh, wanted to have you on for a lot of reasons, but the first is we first met maybe four years ago. Yeah. And we're at a coffee shop in the Culver City neighborhood of Los Angeles. We're talking about collaborating on a project at that moment in time. And you were checking your availability because there was this thing called Catfish that may have been getting produced by MTV. That's crazy. Was that what is that what was happening, or did I had I just finished Follow the Frog? You finished Follow the Frog. So if I just finished Follow the Frog, then I was I had just finished season one of Catfish. Oh, you did. And I was probably waiting to see, and it hadn't aired yet. It hadn't aired yet, and and you didn't know how it was going to do. Right, no idea what was going to happen with it. I was still making videos. I I that year I made uh, Make It Count with Casey Neistat, the the Nike video. And then I I had done like three other videos with him that year, and I the Baldessari short doc that I worked on came out, and then I did follow the frog. It was like a it was a pretty big year. It was for massive, me. yeah. And then you also had a film you wanted to make. Well, right, and that right when I met you was actually I I was talking very in the early stages with working title uh, about this film about a you know a young DJ, um, which became We Are Your Friends, and that's just four years ago. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's funny. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the beginning of this chapter. That and, just, yeah. And so how do you describe to someone, like you meet at a party, coffee shop, and they're like, hey, this is my friend Max. And they say, Max, what are you up to? How do you describe yourself? Um, that's a good question. I, I back then, back then I would have said you were like a I filmmaker. Generally say I'm a film, I, I say I'm a filmmaker. I say I'm a director. Um, some people 
might like ask me for a selfie though, which then prompts the oh I'm I I am also on this show on MTV called Catfish, where I'm like where I appear and it's been on for a little bit, so some people know me from that. But yeah, I don't. It's funny I don't really identify as like a, a host or a co-host. When you you don't self-identify when you make it a point to tell people what you're up to, that's a side angle. It's a side thing. It's a side angle. Yeah, catfish is something I do on the side. I mean, and as something I do on the side, it's it's ta- it's taking up the majority of my of my time right now. But uh, yeah, it's it was a catfish has been a fun detour in what's been an otherwise completely uninterrupted obsessive movie making. Uh, I don't know. Career. <laughs> well, our friend William introduced us. Yeah, and four years later, I, if I would have had this podcast, who would have known? But I had an idea for a book and a podcast around the same time, but I never would have imagined, I would have introduced you as a filmmaker then, and you consider yourself a filmmaker now. That's true. And can you explain to people that haven't watched Catfish what it is? Sure. So Catfish is a doc reality show on MTV where uh, at the very beginning of every episode, we meet someone who's been in an online relationship uh, with someone else. Uh, you know, across the country, and uh, they haven't been able to meet for one reason or another, and uh, and this person has suspicions that the person they're talking to might be lying about something. So we do some research and investigate a little bit, and then we bring that person on a journey to meet the other person and see whether that person has been telling the truth or not, and invariably that person has been lying about something, maybe that's something big or small, but there's a confrontation, and then there's a reconciliation afterwards. And we've made about 72 episodes. Wow. Four seasons? Uh, it's the fifth season right now. Fifth season? Yeah. Five that's, seasons. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, 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 that's awesome. That's some kid's whole high school or middle school experience, <laughs> watch, having MTV on in the background when they do their homework. And then that's you on their TV screen. And that's me. With, yeah. your, with your camera in hand. Yeah. And then you, you're... So when you talk to people and like, and you I say, say I'm a co-host, your co-host. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm the on-screen cameraman, uh, and that was certainly my role from the beginning. But I've become more of an on-screen uh, host as well as just a cameraman. I mean, I generally have a pretty good shot, and a lot of people like to uh, get like to imagine that I'm not filming anything with my camera. Because I'm just holding it there while looking people in the eye and talking to them. But I am, in fact, uh, recording things. But I'm not the main DP of the show. We have a great DP, and I'm kind of one of his... So you're not the actual director of photography, but they use your footage. Correct. Because you're a filmmaker. Yeah. And and Neve... And I'm also, like, I generally have a very good angle because I'm in the (laughs) The face of him? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) the the other guys can't get as close as I can get. And so Neve is your co-host, and he's the main host. Neve is my co-host. There was a there was a documentary called Catfish which was actually a true story about my friend Neve who's now on the show with me getting catfished. Yeah. And so it happened they to went him. went to Sundance and did really he well. Went to Sundance and then uh, got distributed wide uh, through Universal and Relativity and then they decided to do a show version of it um, with MTV. And and Neve asked me three days before shooting the pilot if I wanted to uh, be a part of it because the other guy that was supposed to be a part of it had a scheduling conflict all of a sudden. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll do your pilot. 
Uh, what are the what's you know what's I gonna get happen? Paid, I get paid a little bit for doing this pilot, right? He's like, yeah. It's like, great. I'll do. I'll do the pilot. You can use the cash. He's your buddy, right? You're interested It'll, in the idea. Yeah, I mean, it should be. It could be fun. Like we're you know we'll go on some adventure for a week and see what happens. I mean, I I've been I'd been living in Hollywood long enough to know that most pilots don't go anywhere or do anything, and so I kind of didn't imagine this was going to go anywhere. And now it's like completely. Like you were made fun of on Saturday Night Live, you were parodied. I saw that. Yeah, and uh, the guy who was the host, Adam Levine. Uh, it was Adam Levine. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, this is hysterical because we just worked together on that video, and I was like, Max is now in the pop culture stratosphere. Yeah, it's been it's been very weird because I've never been Mister Pop Culture, and I still feel really out of place, like at the VMAs or the MTV Movie Awards, which I get to go to because MTV gives me a ticket. And I just don't, I don't feel like I fit in there. But it, it's very entertaining <laughs> to be there anyway and to, to kind of witness the, the circus. So people that, you know, looking back at your work, like people that know you from Catfish or not, but getting back to your filmmaking. Um, when we first met, it was because you had this really great video, Follow the Frog, for the Rainforest Foundation, which is 5 million views on YouTube. Yeah. And I teach a marketing class and. I show them the video at the beginning of every class because it, it's shareable content, it's stuff you want to post on Facebook, and it makes you smarter, and it makes you laugh. And, and it's great. So you had that video, you had the Nike video with Casey um, Neistat that you mentioned. Yeah. That um, was where you went around the world. Yeah, Casey and I made uh, three or four videos together, and I think it was 2011 or 12. I'm not sure which year it was. Maybe it was 12. Um, and that was one of them. And we, yeah, Nike, Nike gave him some money to make a, a short little video. And instead of kind of doing what was asked, we went around the world, uh, with like they told the you to make a commercial a video for the fuel band. Yeah. yeah. They were launching the fuel band and that was the third video we had done for the fuel band. And this one, they kind of gave him a, a small amount of money, um, to just do kind of one of his like personal, almost like what he's doing now, like a vlog, but just about the fuel ban. And he kind of took it and he took the money and ran and asked me to, to come with him. And so I, you know, I went with him on the journey and I shot it and, and edited the whole thing. Um, you went all over the world. Yeah. We went to, uh, yeah. In 10 days we went to like, I don't, I, I forgot how many places, maybe it was like 10 places. What was or, the budget for it? I don't know. Casey has never told me. I think it was something like fifty grand. I, I don't think it was like a, a lot. But of you money. made every dollar count, right? That's correct. So you were like jumping off of waterfalls and yeah. Well, Casey was really doing all, most of the daredevil stuff. I was nervous about going to Egypt at the time. I was <laughs> nervous about jumping off things. I was like the nervous guy holding the camera, and it, it was kind of a, a funny foreshadowing of what I would be doing for the next five years, which is essentially holding a camera and following other people around as they go on adventures. So there's this book uh, this guy wrote uh, called Making Ideas Happen. Mm-hmm. It's this guy named Scott Belsky. And he started uh, Behance, which is like mm-hmm. a social network for designers. Mm-hmm. And 99U, this conference for, for doers and makers. And he talks about how there's dreamers and doers. Mm-hmm. And, but you're filmmaking, you're a dreamer. Yeah, I'm not like, I'm, Casey is a doer. He's a doer? Casey's a doer. I'm, I'm a dreamer. I... I definitely I, like. I love going on adventures. Um, I'm not like a daredevil, 
but I love documenting things and I love I'm, I'm I like putting puzzles together mm-hmm. I mean I love I started editing and and I love just being in a room and and playing around with pieces until they fit together in the right way and and once I get them right um I, I don't know it, it that's when I'm in my flow uh creatively and that's when I'm like probably most happy and from editing I've kind of developed I'd always done a lot a lot of writing and and shooting as well and I love photography and and I used to be an actor and so I I I appreciate acting and all that stuff but but I really do it all so that I can finally be alone with it in a room with all my all the pieces to my puzzle and start playing around and see how they fit together best um and so, you know, everything else I have to do to get in that room is an excuse to get in that room. So, yeah, like there's only one way to to get beautiful shots of a waterfall with you or a friend in it. And that's to go to that waterfall and shoot it, even if that waterfalls in Africa. So it's it's like the you know, if I need to get that piece and that's a far flung piece, I'll go and get it. But I'm not do I'm not necessarily doing it because I want to go to a waterfall in Africa. Right. So you're not gonna. It's not your dream to go to Africa for a waterfall, but you, but it's pretty cool to do it's it. It's pretty cool to do it. I it, mean, I love. I will take jobs if I can go to someplace cool. Like I did the Rainforest Alliance job, which was really not a lot of money at all. Um, and I had done a lot of work with nonprofits before. Um, and when we talk about like puzzle pieces, how does that fit into your storytelling then? Because do you have a story in mind that you want to tell, and then you're trying to make pieces? fit later because you have like do you have your story down at the beginning and then you just want to gather as much as you can sometimes you start with with an actual story i generally start with a vibe like unless it's a paid job you know with a paid job that's that's more of an exercise like and and it's fun it's like people give you constraints and oh it's got to be kind of about this and and I, i generally ask with a with paid jobs or with jobs i'm getting hired to do um my first question is, well, what, what do you want to achieve with this? Like, sure, you might think you want this story or this thing. You might have this script or whatever. But my first general question is, like, what, what do you want to achieve? When you're like, when, like a client, you go right. to them. What, do you want people to buy this product? Do you want, um, do you want more, do you want as many views as possible? Or do you only want views from, like, this niche audience? Like, who who's supposed to see this? Who's the desired target? And what's the end goal? And I generally work backwards from that. And gener- it always comes down to, all right, so I get it. I have to make the coolest thing ever. And that's, Interesting. And that's what I generally want to make is the coolest thing ever. And I don't like when, when the constraints are very, well, we need to show the product and it needs to look glossy and yeah. cuz then i kind of feel like well then i'm not making the coolest thing ever i'm i'm doing a checklist of things that you guys think is going to sell something well but i know that if i'm not making the coolest thing ever then it's not going to be the coolest thing ever which means that no one watching it is going to think that it's the coolest thing ever so then how much when you work with a client then is like how much trust do you have to have cuz i imagine a lot of people are just like look we hired you to do the job this is our goal and our outcome here, and we want to accomplish X. We think we know how to do it the right way. So it's funny. The, the jobs I've done best for clients are generally the ones where either the client is so small 
that they just want attention, that's a great client, even if they don't have a lot of money, because then you can do whatever you want and they're down for it. Yeah. You know, like I worked with Delta Faucets. That was kind of the vibe. And with, with Nike, that was very much the vibe, even though they're so big, obviously, and they've got a lot of say. They, they had been working with Casey for a long time and they give him a very wide berth to do whatever he wants. So that was very creatively, uh, you know, liberating. Did, did he plan the agenda? Yeah. The- yeah, I mean, like, they, they just know that... And you were like, we're, once we're there, we're going to do this, and we're going to make Yeah, that and happen. we did a lot of... We improvised a lot and, like, made it up as we went along, which is also really fun. Um, I, did a, I did a spot for Lomans, which was actually a really funny spot. I mean, I like working with companies that, that are down to make something cool and creative and a little daring, especially if it's for the internet. Like, it has to... It has to be a little provocative and a little controversial, and you have to push the envelope a little. If you play yeah. it too safe, then then it feels corporate and slick, and it won't. It'll it'll be DOA. So with, with Fall of the Frog and the Rainforest Foundation, so what, Rain, was, what was the vibe? Yeah, so Rainforest Alliance, like they had very the little Alliance. money, um, and they kind of were like, come up with a bunch of ideas. Or I said to them, look, because I, I get very excited and I'll come up with like six ideas and I like all of them. And so I did. I kind of came up like with Like you met a, with them and you said, let's work together. I talked on the phone with them. I got a sense of what they wanted. I kind of said to them, you know, like I, because I had also spent maybe six or seven years making a lot of uh, web content for this company called Good Magazine. Oh, yeah, that's right. And Good is a very socially progressive, smart, like intellectual, design-oriented brand. And I was, head, I, I was just making videos for them for a long time, and then I, I became the head of their video department for a little bit. And the challenge was always taking a topic that was, you know, inherently unsexy, whether it's like politics or like, environmental, uh, you know, uh, preservation or sustainability or like yeah. things that are just not like, clickbait, yeah. you know, and, and making them fun that where you can watch them and, and it's entertaining, but it's also, um, informative and you come away having learned something. And, you know, the, the idea is that information can be viral right? if, packaged in, in a really entertaining way, but you've got to be brutally honest with yourself when you're making something. You're like, is this something I would watch? And, and I would always tell the people I was working with, like, we're competing with internet porn. Like, <laughs> we're on the shelf right. next to internet porn, which is like... And that's which is more like, clickable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, if you're, if you're making online video, then you're competing with, with everything. Internet porn, cats. Well, like the guy, cats. Reed Hastings from Netflix said that when Netflix started, they were rivals with HBO. And then they became rivals with like Comcast and cable providers. And then he's like, we're now rivals with anything that takes up your attention. Like anything that consumes you doing something that's not Netflix is our rival. And I, yeah, and I see that. I definitely, I approach everything like that. And it's, it's a brutal criteria to meet every time. And, and you kind of rack your brain saying, well, how can I... You know, because the rain, so the Rainforest Alliance came to me, and I'd already been doing this and kind of training my brain to work in this way. And I had done my 10,000 hours of, of coming up with content that was both fun, but also smart and informative. I always used to like to call it smart art or like 
SM and then capital ART. Uh-huh. Just like something that was conceptually clever and intelligent, but also had, you know, and was stylish, but also had another level of, of uh, re- uh, relevance. Yeah. So when Rainforest Alliance came to me, I was like, oh, God, okay, the rainforest. Right. Like, this is like I've been feeling, you know, since I was a kid, all I've been hearing is that there's this amazing thing called the rainforest, and it covers, it used to cover a lot of the earth, and it's been been getting diminished, and it's got these trees, which are how we breathe. And, I mean, I remember learning about it like Earth Day when I was, you know, in fourth grade, third grade. Right. And I'm a pretty anxious person in general, and I feel guilty about a lot of different things, personal and non-personal. And I was kind of searching for a way to access how do I make this thing about the rainforest, not just another, you know, showing trees getting cut down with sad music and, like, making people feel bad and guilty. Because one thing you learn when you're making kind of socially relevant or or socially conscious... uh, films or content is that like guilt is not viral yeah like guilting people making people feel guilty when they watch something is not going to end in them wanting to share it you don't want to share that no because it's going to bum people out yeah you don't want to share something that bums out your friends right you want to share something that like makes them smile makes them smile makes them smart makes them like buzzfeed right buzzfeed doesn't have depressing videos give them it's kind of an up gives you a boost yeah and Unfortunately, like when you're when you're working in that category of stuff, like you there are a lot of great things that are off limits. Like you can't use a lot of bathroom humor. Like you can't you can't go lowest common denominator, which is a great challenge. Like, yeah, right. Which the, is so easy to do. Which well, I mean, it's in its own right, it's, it's like probably in, like, hard to do. Like in the in the state video at the very end, you're on the toilet. Right. And you're like, I made the popular page right. like on Vine. And it's a great ending. Right. There's, there's That's more a, of a comedy. There's video. a way to marry the two though, so it really so it works. And and so I'd been training my brain to do that for a long time and, and I don't know, I'd been thinking a lot and I'd worked at Good Magazine for so long and everyone who used to work there was so socially and environmentally uh, uh conscientious. I mean like everyone had their bikes and their Priuses. And everyone was interested in doing all these good things. And on the weekend, they would meet up and do protests. And I yeah. don't know. I, and I felt constantly every day that I was like the worst yeah, yeah. of all of them. Because right. I wasn't doing those things. But I, but I felt guilty about it. You weren't like it. making a difference. Right. And so, and I don't do yoga. And I don't. Do you meditate? I, I try to meditate. Mm-hmm. But like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a slacker. And so I kind of took that that anxiety that I had about being good and wanting to be good and then not quite necessarily oh, living up to it. And I, and that's, and I found that was, oh, the, wow. that's how I accessed this. Oh, that's smart. The rainforest. Alliance I actually piece. relate to that video because I myself have a Prius and right. I just feel like I'm not doing enough. Right. So, and I generally, and when I teach the class, I tell people that there's a relationship here where like, it's almost like you look inside and, you take yourself a little less seriously watching that video because you're like, okay, I'm not alone. A lot of other people feel really guilty that we don't do more to help something like the rainforest. So I think that that feeling of you're not alone is maybe the most important part of any video or piece of content because that's where 
the audience gets on board. And then once they're on board, you can take them on a wild ride. But if you don't disarm them at first with kind of letting them know that you know who they are and that you guys share something, like the reason why I think Follow the Frog works so well is that like the first 20 seconds or 30 seconds like are spent in in real mundane life yeah. getting people to identify with it and they kind of surrender to the piece they're like I don't know where this is going but they got me or and and I wasn't trying to get anyone I was really just expressing my own anxiety about not being good enough and that that's so fascinating that's kind of hit a yeah. chord and then from there I was able to like pivot and go on this wild ride to Costa Rica and like all these crazy absurd things happen but because I because it's kind of rooted in in a real feeling that a lot of us share there was this, I'm not alone. Oh my God, this thing feels like me. This thing gets me. And then you're kind of, you're on board and then you go on the ride. And then at the end, there's a little bit of a payoff. And, and it, you know, the payoff is that like, oh, I don't have to actually be the goody two shoes necessarily that I, that I'm putting all this pressure on myself to be. I can actually, there's actually a smaller, easier step I can take to being good which is buying things that are, that are Rainforest Alliance certified. Wait, so you're like the most, this is like the most thoughtful construct I've ever heard for someone to explain making a video online, right? So you're very specific in your style and thinking and you went to Brown yeah, and then you're from New York City. Yeah. So did you want to be a filmmaker at a young age? Yes. And yeah, so you've I always wanted... sort of thought like this about how to break things down and... Yeah. Yeah, I mean like, yeah, I, since I was 15, I knew exactly what I wanted to be. But like, there, and, and, you know, I love Woody Allen movies a lot. And part of the reason why I love them so much is that he's so brutally honest about himself. He knows himself and he knows he's very willing to be honest about like the ugly things. And he has a way of turning the imperfections into things that are funny. And, and there's a kind of alchemy there that I really like. And I don't, I, I don't always pull that card. Like the Nike video, which went way more viral wasn't spent kind of disarming people and getting them. What was it? That just did well. I think it was like an F you, right? It was like, screw the corporation. We're going to do the video our own way. Yeah. There's a go, there was a going rogue aspect to it. That was fun. I, I, one, one theory I developed about web video. Um, I have a bunch of like criteria that I like little rules or guidelines that, that have really worked for me and that I see working in, in things that, that generally go viral or that work. And, uh, one of them was like great concept plus great execution equals great video. Um, that sounds simple, which is very simple. I mean, like, and I got that kind of from walking around a lot of museums and looking at like the, the modern contemporary art, which is very conceptual art. And generally they're just good ideas that are well, well done that are well done as opposed to like, let's say like a Renaissance painting, which is like, the idea behind it isn't isn't a revolutionary idea. It's a depiction generally of a of a biblical scene, but but rendered so technically yeah. perfectly, which which doesn't appeal to me nearly as much as like a weird sculpture with a great name. And the name of it plus what I'm looking at, like it's like inception, like puts a great idea in my brain. And all of a sudden I've I've walked away from that piece like with a new with a new appreciation or a new piece of wisdom that I've gotten from it. Right. And so, you know, I think that a, 
very simple, great concepts make great videos. And, and, the, and the Nike video um, was a very simple concept. And it's set up, and this is something that Casey Neistat does really well and why he's such a good storyteller, even with very kind of simple tools, is that he, he, he sets things up really well. He, he makes that engine. He creates the engine, and then the engine can run for a long time and keep you hooked. And the, and the simple concept or engine of, of the Nike video was like, yeah, Nike gave me a bunch of money. And instead of doing what they wanted to do, I went with my friend on a joyride around the world yeah. and we'll, and we saw and, how long the money would work. And at that point, and everyone would love to do that. That was just text on it's, screen. Yeah. That wasn't, we, I mean like that was the simplest like setup asp- ever. Aspirational. We, I'd love to do that. We like, just explained I, that. Yeah. And that was such a, it, it's such a clear, simple concept that, it's a good engine and then around that engine you, and then, and then it has to go somewhere cool. So great concept plus great execution, you know, in the music and the editing and the rhythm and all that stuff like that needed to also work. Um, and you know, and then if you nail those two things, hope and hopefully it, it goes viral. Well, what movies did you like growing up that you felt like resonated with you that you, were like inspired you to make something like Fall of the Frog or any work you've done. Well, outside of Woody Allen, Train Spotting. Yeah, I mean, they took a subject that you know I think everyone associates drug addiction with. You know, more a film more like The Basketball Diaries, which is something. Oh yeah, it's a that's great movie. Like pretty harrowing, or, or even Requiem for a Dream, which yeah. is a great film too. But like those are movies that you only want to watch once. Right, right. Very harrowing and sad, and like really drag you down to the depths. And like you know, they're they're cautionary in their own way. And you're like, God, I, I never want that to happen to yeah. me. And and one thing I loved about Train Spotting is it really I, I've never identified with a character or a protagonist more than I do. Ewan McGregor's character in that movie, and I'm not a drug addict, but they not only did they take a subject that is generally one thing and and put it in a perspective that made it fun and exciting to explore, even though it was still honest, but it also resonated with me on a level about other things that I'm addicted to and like kind of the joys and uh, the highs and lows of addiction, whether it's drugs or you know, OCD mm-hmm. or whatever it Anxiety. is. Yeah. I think that that movie is a, it's just, it's fun and it's exciting and it, and it, um, frames things in a, in a really entertaining package. That's, that's also got a lot of honesty and, and wisdom to it too. Do you think you feel things differently? Like, are you deep in your feelings? Cause the way you identify with a drug addict is I would never have thought that from that movie. Well, I, but you could to, see you could see the different windows that it connects you to. To me, that movie is about um, <laughs> it, it, the, that movie functions on a structural level. I think uh, like uh, do do I or don't I? Like every scene is is it's kind of like an essay that's set up by the choose life monologue do i choose life or do i choose heroin and every scene is kind of a pro or con in the category of life or heroin like heroin the the pros are that i get this amazing rush and when i'm an addict i don't have to worry about all the the bullshit mundane parts of life and and there's this yeah, i've got these great friends and i get this amazing high and it's better than sex of course the con 
of heroin is that like I have these terrible withdrawals. I can die. Yeah. My friends are kind of scumbags and they're they're fucking me over and it's starting to get in the way of like my living my real life. Now, the pros of life is that you live, mm-hmm. but the cons are that real life without drugs can be kind of boring. Yeah. And and you know, it's tough and you got to get a real job and all these things and and that thesis of that of that ambivalence is set up right at the beginning, kind of like the Nike piece. Yeah, you're right. And then every scene, whereas most films, you know, a character has a goal. You know, James Bond needs to find the the guy who's doing the bad thing and hunt him down or whatever it is. And it's more of a concrete uh, goal to achieve. And in Transpotting, there is no concrete goal. It's The whole thing is this back and forth of, you know, sliding back into addiction or moving out of it. And yet it works just as well as as a film where, you know, the character wants something very simple and concrete. And so there's some and I'm a very anxious person who's very ambivalent about a lot of things. <laughs> and I spend all day long kind of tennis balling back and forth about do I like that thing? Do I not like that thing? I should do that thing. No, I shouldn't do that thing. And and even the the even the Follow the Frog movie is very much like my inner monologue. Of you know that's my brain kind of gets obsessed. So how does things. growing up in New York City affect how your brain absorbs things? Because there's so much at New York when you go. To, I lived there for a summer in college, and I was exhausted. I never wanted to live there again. And growing up there for what through high school in New York City, yeah, yeah. whereabouts in New York City? Uh, I grew up in Greenwich Village for a little bit, and then in Brooklyn for ten years, and then in Manhattan for two. Are your parents creative people professionally? Um, not professionally. No, my my. Parents are both in like finance and like that world, the corporate financial world. And, uh, but my dad, uh, is, uh, has always been a photographer and my grandmother was an artist. So there's always been a lot of like creativity and arts in my family, but not in, not professionally uh, in my parents. And how did you take that like decision tree at a young age that you wanted to like commit? Well, w- my parents both worked really hard and they like I was an only child and they would both come home late not not so late but you know they were working crazy wall street hours and they'd come home and my mom would generally complain and 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 bitch about work and and a lot of the dinner table time was spent and we'd always eat dinner together every night and like I was just like I don't want to do what they do because it's like they're they're doing it really hard. Yeah, but I don't. I want to really enjoy what I do. Right, and, and I, that's not to say that they don't enjoy it. But like at a young age, I was like, I don't want to come home at night and not be happy about what I'm doing. I want to do something that I love. And I think that in New York, everyone is so all in about what everything about what they're doing. All yeah. my parents' friends. I mean, like if you're gonna make it in New York, you really got to be like. Like committed, committed and to dedicated, doing it. yeah. And so I feel like you, growing up there, you kind of absorb that like ambition that whatever I do, I'm really going to have to commit to it. and I'm going to have to do it all the way because that's what people do. I remember my cousin who was older than me and like a super cool guy. He was, he wasn't from New York, but he was like living in the apartment above us, and he was working for Jim Henson, and he. He was doing Sesame Street, and he ended up doing Labyrinth and and uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, the first movie. He was like a puppeteer, and that was the cool. Oh, I mean, yeah. that was the coolest yeah. thing 
ever. And he was, he was young. He was like 19 or 20, 21. And, but like he was on it and he was doing the coolest thing ever. And I was just like, that's gotta be the coolest job ever. He must just have fun every day. I want to have fun every day. So I wanted to be an actor and I started doing acting things and I got in, I was doing plays and going to auditions. And then that, you know, then that led to like, writing and then writing and acting kind of led me to directing and and so it kind of morphed a little bit and brown's like a very creative and brown's university yeah brown's a very creative place you can major in art can't you yeah i I mean mean, you you can no there's no require there's no core requirement so you can kind of build your own uh build your own i don't know education and that can be very daunting and and you can end up with a very lopsided education but it was great. I mean, um, it's a little too much freedom at first. Was yours filmmaking? No. Um, I had a lot of talks with my dad when I was in high school about not going to film school and not... He kind of... I think my dad, who's a very cautious, conservative guy, even on Wall Street, which, you know, he that can be an unpopular... <laughs> he's always been very bearish and, and conservative. Um, and he just wants to keep things safe he kind of said to, he he was dubious about my going into film because he saw it as a real toss-up and it's a gamble yeah and, you know super you, risky you, it's very risky and you never know and he kind of at an early age was just like you should really go into creative writing because creative writing you know it's it's almost a cheaper way to to make films. Yeah. You can really, like, you also, and, and he didn't know this at the time, but he was totally right, is that, like, you end up studying story, and you end up studying, like, the the literature. Yeah. And, and the great books. Right. And I became an English major, and I was I was really into reading and writing. Oh, like, smart. English literature. Yeah. And That's I, good advice. I wanted to come out of, because I also realized in school, like, oh, God, what, this is turning into, I don't know, like, this is, I, I'm starting to feel like, I'm starting to get self-conscious about being pretentious but at brown because you could take well, the first part of this conversation was like a master class on web video so we're now, i love web video so i could talk about web video that's forever. what's interesting about this is sort of like you decision to become a writer actually helps you become better as a filmmaker and you right. really know the language of how to speak to people i also had a really good mentor um who I actually met with yesterday, who's a filmmaker who went to my high school. So your, your Brown major, essentially, you, you were writing, which I think is interesting because as a storyteller, writing is critical. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I had come out to L.A. for an in, internships, and I, I've always been a very curious person, and I've always asked a lot. As an only child, you get comfortable asking adults things. And, um, and I always asked a lot of people and who I'd met through friends of friends or whatever in Hollywood, what's the best way forward? And everyone always said, well, you got to write, you got to write the script. Yeah. If you write the script, it's much easier to then direct the script. Because so, you, you have the control and the power? Well, not just, well, sure, there's that because you have a piece of property that someone wants to make into something. But it's also like, if you're good at telling a story, even if that story is through words on paper, then people have a lot more confidence and are willing to invest in the idea that you'll be able to kind of trans- translate that into a visual story. Right. Um, and, and the building blocks of a good story and learning good characters and just overall concepts 
uh, I think is is super important. And and you know, I'd gotten some advice too from from other mentors that like, you know, you can essentially get paid to go. To, you can get paid to work on movies, which is essentially better than going to film school because yeah. you pay to go to film school and you right. pay a lot of money and you're kind of learning in a bubble. That's not to say that film school isn't good. In fact, a lot of my friends did and, and they met their lifelong collaborators in film school. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what film school does best is that you're in this class of like-minded people and you end up kind of gravitating towards each other and, and you make things for the rest of your life together. But in terms of like learning the technical film is very technical and practical. Um, and it's also, it's about working together and you've got to learn a lot before you mastered enough of it to be able to really express yourself through it. And you can learn a lot of that on the job, which means you can get paid to learn how to actually make movies. Um, whereas reading the great books and having a great professor there to kind of break them down for you and really explain to you why Henry James is, is so great or, you know, what, or why Moby Dick is amazing or what, you know, like that stuff, I think I, so because Brown is so open and, and there is no requirement, I had to start like, you know, prioritizing what classes I was going to take and why. And I ended up, I, I've, I really love history and I really love film but I ended up taking very few history and film classes because I was like, well, there's so much I want to learn, but of all the things, and I know a great history teacher makes things different, but like, I also love reading books about history. And I know that once I graduate, I'll be able to like find a great book on like, like the Russian civil war and I'll be able to read it and kind of like appreciate it. Appreciate it. But what I won't be able to do once college is over is like sit down with like, like James Joyce, uh, like Ulysses and, and understand it, you know? (laughs) So like, it was my, I prioritized like trying to really understand and, and get and glean the, the wisdom from the great books, both, you know, creatively and, 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 uh, I don't know the meaning of them so that I would then, I don't know. I, I just love, that's cool. That that's what I, that's awesome. I mean, that's what college is for. You're gonna spend four years. You may as well do something that you can never do again. Right. If you're not gonna go for a specific trade or skill to get you to the next level, like film, right? Do something that you can only do then that you have an opportunity that not a lot of people do to go to Brown. And that and and then when I got out to L.A., I started uh, cutting directors reels for the different studios, um, or not the different. Sorry, I started cutting directors reels for the different agencies, um, and. I got better at it and I started getting paid Putting a lot. Puzzle I, pieces I became together. the go-to guy. Yeah. I would watch all their films and I was like the only person, they were mostly TV directors and they'd done all these hours and hours and hours of TV and not even their family had kind of seen everything they had done. And I would watch everything and then take bits and pieces of it and create like a montage and a DVD and a kind of like a visual resume yeah. that kind of somehow captured the essence of their signature. And it was great because it would be me and this very accomplished director alone in a room together. That's amazing. And I would just be like, what were you thinking? You're like the apprentice. Yeah, no, yeah. I was just like, what were you thinking when you did this great camera move there? And like their 
psyched to be able to talk yeah. about it. So I was like getting paid and I was learning all this stuff. And so I, I, in a way, that was my film school. And so you talk about friends that went to film school that learned how to collaborate and they met lifelong partners and creative uh, collaborators. Casey Neistat and Neve Shulman from Catfish, you're old friends with them. I is that right? Yeah, I so so you have great collaborators. Yeah, because there's a there's a podcaster named James Altucher, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called Choose Yourself, which I quote in my book, mm-hmm. and he talks about how you can't be a lone genius, mm-hmm. and there are no lone geniuses in the world. Mark Zuckerberg wasn't great until Sheryl Sandberg got there, you know, and everyone has their collaborators because you can't make stuff in a in a in a garage and expect the world to appreciate it and buy tickets, mm-hmm. and so you've been lucky. You've had some great collaborators. Yeah, it is It is really lucky. I, I've also had some great mentors, too, which is very hard to find these days. Because generally, the better someone is at something, the the busier they are and the less... Are they going to be a dick or not? Right. <laughs> well, also in film, it's really hard. I, I, I don't know how it is in like venture capitalism or, or entrepreneurship, because I kind of feel like if you're really successful you're going to a lot of conferences and like you have, there's a lot of time to talk about it. Yeah. But when you're like a successful screenwriter, like you're locked away somewhere working on stuff or like if you're a successful director, like you're, you've got seven plates in the air. You don't have time to help out like someone who's just starting. And so it's really hard to find a good mentor. And I, I was blessed to meet a few. Um, and, and then, yeah, collaborators, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm very competitive and I'm, I'm pretty insecure. So I tend to shy away from like meeting, like just seeking out filmmakers and becoming friends with them. Um, and it just so happened that like I came up and grew up with a bunch of kids and we all got into film together. And through those guys, I met Casey. I only met Casey like when we started working on those videos together, but we had a lot of friends in common. And now we've become really great friends. Yeah. Um, and I love, yeah, I, I, I've almost done my best work when I've been collaborating and not even necessarily directing when I've been editing for my friends because... I like, sometimes I really like having the constraint of saying, someone saying, you have to do something in this, in, these are the constraints, and I, I need something like this. And, and within that sandbox, you can play as much as you want. And I'm good at that. It's, it's almost harder sometimes when you can do anything. Yeah. When, when there are no constraints, when you have unlimited budget, unlimited time. It could be about anything. You know, that's almost where I, like, I I don't know how to thrive. Like, I'm good. If you you set limitations. Yeah, I mean, like, as an editor, a lot of editors know this. It's like, if most of the jobs when you're a young editor are fix-it jobs. You know, it's like you've taken the Hippocratic Oath of editing, which is that, like, I will fix and mend any project that, that, <laughs> that lands on my table. Right. And you get really good at, at all these creative fixes because in a lot of, some projects are so bad that there's only like one way to fix them. And once you find it, it's great and you can really fix something. It's a totally different skill when all of a sudden you're being handed a tons and tons of good material. Right. That's called tonnage. Uh-huh. And it's a problem because, oh shit, this could work in a million different ways which way is the best way? Like, 
And it's a different problem than just like fixing something to work in the one way it can. Uh huh. It, it's like, oh my god, it, it, it's like there's t- there's too many good things here, and I don't know. And how that, to but narrow you, but them you're down. the person that has to be disciplined enough to make the call to make it the best. Yeah, when you're editing, you're the first audience member. Yeah, and so you have to be brutally honest with yourself about is this boring? Am I on board? Does this have my attention? Is this going in the right direction? Um, and you really have to like, you really have to be in touch with your gut. So how, how'd you meet Neve then? So when I was 15, I did a summer program, a filmmaking program here at UCLA. And um, my, one of the guys I met on that program who became my best friend was Neve's older brother, Rel, R-E-L, who was my age. Um, and he was from New York, and I was from New York, and uh, we were from, like, rival high schools. And we, when we went back from that summer program, um, Neve and, uh, Rel and I remained friends, and he had this annoying <laughs> ADHD younger brother named Yaniv, who, uh, who that's Neve, that's yeah, his full yeah. name. And everywhere we went for the next five or six years, like Neve was in, always in, tagging, tagging along, like Neve would come with us and I'd always be like, does Neve have to come? Like, you know, Neve was kind <laughs> of like dead weight for a long time. Um, and then he, you know, he grew up and, and he and I were never like great friends cause, cause Rel and I were, were close. And, and then when the show came around, Neve asked me if I, cause I was a filmmaker and, and his brother who had done the movie was working on directing a feature and they needed someone for the show, and and Neve asked me if I would do it. And then since then, Neve and I have become really close friends. So you spend so much time with him. Yeah, we spend a lot of time together. So when you you so he and he's like my brother. You but know? when you get on Catfish, though, like there's luck involved, like that you got picked to be on the show because you're sure. But what did you do? You think in your career that set yourself up that Neve's like, well, you're a filmmaker, you know this universe enough, you could be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it was very not thought out. And I was shocked at almost how, like, unplanned it was. And, like, I wasn't vetted. Like, MTV didn't, like. Oh, really? They never. No, there weren't, like. No no, executives. No, no. There were no, there was no, like, rounds of casting or anything like that. No, he literally called me on a Friday. And they were leaving to shoot, they were flying to New York to shoot the pilot on Monday, and he was like, the guy I had asked to be part of this has a scheduling conflict, <laughs> and, like, I need someone fast. Like, can you... Like, that, you're, know, the, you're the guy behind the I guy? Know, right, yeah. He's like, I know you shoot, and, like, he knows that I, you know, I'm friends with Rel, and, you know, I don't, I don't you know. You go back with him? Yeah, and he was like, would you do it? And I oh, was wow. like, sure. It'll be fun. Let's see what happens. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I don't know. That was a total... Because you wrote that hilarious article about how you're a, like a celebrity on the yeah. D list, yeah, and that people recognize or minor celebrity people yeah. recognize you, and how you recognize Seinfeld as a guy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's weird. It's weird being it's you're on the other end of it. Minorly famous, yeah, it's pretty surreal and fun. Um, it's fun. It's not at a crazy level where. But do people recognize you like the Pinkberry or Starbucks? Yeah. randomly. Yeah, and they. Are like, where have I seen you before? Yeah, a lot of where have I seen you before are like, do you come in here a lot? Like when I'm in a random city, I'm like, no. And I know, you know, it's like there's a lot of that. And then oh, do you some, come, are you a regular here? Yeah, and then some people are like, Neve? Do we go to high school they, together? They, they think I'm Neve or they say uh, Neve or they go, hey, it's Catfish. <laughs> I've that. that one. A lot of hey, it's People catfish. yelling at you? Yeah, a lot of yelling. Um, 
but it's fun. It's not at a crazy level. I mean, I made a film with Zac Efron, and we went on a press tour, and like, he, it's like the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, we were in Europe with him, and like, I don't like, I don't know how they figure out where he's going to be, but they're there. They're there before Just fans waiting yeah. in line, like rabid, hungry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's freaky. Fans, fans, paparazzi. Sometimes fans and paparazzi are like the same it's like, thing. G- g- yeah, they, it's it, like it's like it's like when zombies attack. It's like oh my god, like there they are. It's crazy. And they just come in like masses. Yeah. And they love and scream and yeah, and that's at a level that I, I would never. I don't think I have to worry about that happening. That was Max. I want to thank him for coming on to the Rhino Lab. We actually talked a little bit longer about his film, We Are Your Friends. And so I'm deciding if I want to divvy this up into two episodes or if I want to make it uh, bonus content later or if it was just great as a 50-minute episode. So anyway, that was it. Tweet me at Ryan J. Will if you would like the rest of this episode. Thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode with Max Joseph. I'm here with my baby daughter, Libby. Hello, Libby. She's grunting a little bit. Not a lot to say as a four-month-old. So I wanted to let everyone know that I'm grateful that you listened to the show again. We're now called the Rhino Lab. It was really time for a reboot, and I felt like the stories from the influencer economy name was really cumbersome. And my whole goal with the influencer economy was to write a book. So I got to that level of podcast success with the book in a symbiotic relationship with the podcast because the podcast gave me a platform to reach influencers who I covered in the book and vice versa. The The book gave me a reason to have a podcast and I've loved talking to the community. I've always been a stand-up comedian at heart since I started doing comedy in the Uh, years after college, so I felt like it was fun to connect with audiences again, and the podcast will remain the same thing, same type of guest, but also be focusing more on mental health. So uh, depression, anxiety, OCD, elements like that, ADD, ADHD, I'll be having more mental health conversations in addition to talking to influencers in the modern digital economy, as well as, oh, there's Libby, as well as entrepreneurs.